0: Welcome to Everything Hurts. My name is Dan Quintana from the University of Oslo. I'm here with James Heathers from CypherSkin and a very special guest, Brian Nozek, who is the co-founder and executive director of the Center for Open Science. And it's his second episode. First joined us back in 2018, back on episode 69, which was on Open Science Tools. Welcome back, Brian. Glad to be back. I got an email a couple of days ago, which was telling me that um, OSF has just hit Half a million users. How about that?
1: Yeah. No, it's a remarkable number to sort of step back from and say, wow, a lot has changed in 10 years. This is
0: yeah. it's a new world. <laughs> I, I saw a stat the first year. There was a couple of hundred users. Uh, so to, to go from that, this e- exponential growth is amazing. We, we actually host a backup of the show. On OSF, All of our MP3 files oh, <laughs> are up there so that some, uh, you know, maybe some meta-scientist in 40 years' time is going to go, how did, how did all that stuff uh, break down b- b- back Brian, in the day? He's
2: being somewhat disingenuous. He likes the fact that because they're automatically assigned DOIs, people can <laughs> cite his terrible audio opinions as well as his terrible <laughs> written opinions. That so, is also true. <laughs> it's uh, He's trying to get a few more sites. Daniel, I'm on to you.
0: Getting those, getting those extra sides. But we're not, we're not here to specifically uh, talk about OSF, and I'm sure it's going to come back in. We want to talk about this new, um, this new memo, the Office of Science and Technology Policy Memo, which was on uh, ensuring free, immediate, and equitable access to federally funded research. And this had three recommendations, uh, the first of which was to make publications and their supporting data resulting from federally funded research publicly accessible without an embargo. Um, to establish transparent procedures that ensure scientific and research integrity is maintained and to coordinate with OSTP to ensure the equitable delivery of federally funded research results and data. Now, Brian, you've described this as a transformational document. Why do you think it's transformational?
1: The, The major contributions of it are to, one, move open access from popular... And much of the research system to most all of it, uh, and open access in the, in the general sense of the term by saying that every bit of federally funded research out of the U.S., uh, that's reported in a paper should be released, uh, publicly without embargo, uh, upon finishing, you know, peer review, whatever the standards in the publication process. So that used to have a 12 month embargo and only applied to a subset of US-supported research. Uh, But now it will apply to all of it. Um, And that is a democratization of access to uh, knowledge that has been paid for by the American taxpayer uh, and should be available to everyone. And so now the federal government's putting some, um, some impetus behind that to make it happen. Then the second is even bigger, I think, because it moves the open data movement from You know, still early adopter, early mainstream into very much the mainstream because the policy objective is once you publish the paper and release the paper openly, you also, the policy should include the data uh, behind that paper. Um, And that's a a huge uh, leap forward in terms of what the policy uh, context in the US is uh, for uh, advancing uh, transparency of more of the research.
2: Yeah. So a uh, quick, quick qualification from also to someone who had to struggle through reading about the past thing. When They're using the phrase public access here very deliberately yeah. rather than open access. And I don't know why they did that, but if I guessed, I think it would be because they want a differentiation from the open access quote unquote journal movement the whole idea of a journal whose commercial structure is open access to the focus being on what the outcome actually is. So presumably, under this policy, it would be perfectly okay to go to the most commercial journal in the entire world um, where they never made anything open access. And once you get to the point where everyone agrees that you're going to publish it, the sort of pre-typesetting point, you can public archive that paper at that point and then it can go into the world garden forever except for the minor fact that it's already been let out and that is unusual i wonder how you think that's going to play out because i have some suspicions but you know more about this than we do that's why you're here what do <laughs> what do you think's no, going to happen
1: yeah that's that's a scenario that would not be misaligned with what is at least stated uh, in the uh, policy uh, as you described it. Um, and there's a lot of discussion about why using why the term public access is there and not open access. Um, and I think the, the most sensible response to it is that the memo is deliberate about avoiding assumptions about the business models that are, uh, are will ultimately be consistent with the policy. Their goal is to make it public. The goal right now from OSTP's perspective is not to define what the licensing should be. Um, The uh, agencies can determine that uh, in their development of a policy process, nor is it to dictate what type of openness or public access meets the policy other than the the definition that they uh, provided, which is the public should be able to read it uh, for free. Um, so that can have a lot of potential uh, licensing models and pub- business models that end up being attached and and part of the stress I think in the community of course is wow some of those models are better for me as a publisher or as a society leader uh, than others and inevitably uh, the the requirement for it to be public access will stress a lot of business models and I think, Frankly, OSTP was wise not to specify what direction it should go uh, because there's implications for over-prescribing on models at the outset rather than letting some of that churn happen uh, and then reinforcing those that are desirable ones later.
2: Yeah, for sure. I mean, you you can end up with – you are talking about uh, an equilibrium that's formed out of a policy that has to necessity, but by necessity be very broad going into a market full of very clever people who are used to, let's say, the mechanisms of capture. So if you say it has to happen according to an open access framework number two, you know, like you're ordering at Denny's and you say, give us a number two, thanks very much. Um, that will very immediately, and also, I mean, there's also quite there's a few years to plan this. I don't think it'd even take that long. That would immediately be subject to some form of of capture itself. So if they prescribed it, must be in must be in a journal. eventual product within the journal must be an open access document. Um, I see that immediately changing OA fee structure, and also all the people who control sort of 75% of everything that's published anywhere, all taking a hard look at each other, coming up with essentially the same models, and then putting a structure in place that just immediately deals with that. Um, I mean, they are supposed to. Like, there's, there's, there's someone in a basement right now, Brian, going, damn them, you know? Someone someone who has more energy and less wrinkles than, than, than we do. Um, <laughs> but, I mean... Companies will follow their fiduciary duty. That's kind of what they do. So they have headed that off with this, haven't they? We're talking about the outcome and not the process. It's good. It's a good decision. So we yes. haven't got to any. Of, we haven't got to any of your hesitations yet.
1: Yeah. yeah. <laughs> the, so, but you're right. It, it is really saying that this is what we need to get to. Um, There are many paths to get there, and um, I think what this will prompt, now that they've sort of set this line in the sand of a date uh, and an end goal, is the reckoning that needs to happen among all of the various stakeholders uh, that really are motivated by the mission of science rather than by the profit of science, because they're the ones that have been reluctant to act. the, the the groups that are motivated by the profits to be made, they have a very clear objective and they're consistent and will continue to be consistent in pursuing that objective. But those motivated by the mission of science or mission of research, I should say, since it applies to, uh, to the humanities as well, um, like librarians in universities or like society leaders uh, who ostensibly are mission-driven for supporting the science and uh, research in in their disciplinary domain, they do have reckoning moments here, which is, okay, this is going to change. How is it that I can align the goals, mission, organization, interests, revenue streams of my society, organization, institution uh, to best meet the goals of the policy that are aligned with the goals that I have? organizationally and there are lots of opportunities there
2: mm. example
1: example is moving so, so I've, I've talked to societies a number of times about the worries about open access uh, and one of the things i think has not yet uh, that i've been saying like this could actually work but no society i know of has actually pursued it uh, is to really start to think of publication in terms of microservices uh, rather than needing to do the entire process of you know peer review typesetting copy editing everything else dissemination societies that are worried about losing their revenue from having the you know the crack dealership relationship with a publisher, and they get the proceeds from that to run their operations, could make a leap, which would be to say, what is our primary asset as a society? It is the intellectual expertise of the members of the society.
2: Yeah, for real.
1: So, to the extent that those members care about the society, that sub-discipline, the service or time that we provide to that society could be in the form of, yes, I will review on behalf of the society or for the society or in collaboration with the society uh, papers as they come through. Um, And that be a service that the society organizes and charges fees for, for authors, uh, maybe would be popular on this show even pay the reviewers a bit uh of that of that uh, itself uh through through di- but only through discounts uh, for society membership of course um the the
2: yeah for real but I mean, look this is I'm, I'm not actually i'm not actually like centrally opposed to the idea that you can continuously do that because I mean, all, all you're doing is uh if you accept the fact that you have to pay a reviewer, you accept the fact there's going to be an upfront cost in the first place. Um, if you have any functional model that doesn't involve you just charging the bejesus out of every library on the planet, and the money's actually coming from somewhere, it is much easier to cut out the middleman and um and have a credit system and <laughs> just be <laughs> continually transferring payments everywhere. Right. I mean, it's possible. People have often said to me, "Oh, it's so very, very difficult to pay a million, million people." Uh, uh, it's, it's, it's really not. It's 2022. That doesn't make it a good idea. It doesn't mean that you want to handle all that and have a tax, uh, 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 take to carry your tax obligations, handle all the paperwork. I mean, you run a society. The the things that are done out of an of right? In any given organization, because it's simpler. Um, it, even even moderate expense, a lot of the time, that comes along with simplicity, will instantly cut like right to the heart of something. We're, we're not going to do it the complicated way because we just we need we need to get the time back. We've got a trajectory here, so I didn't I didn't mean to interrupt you, but I do I yeah. This is uh, <laughs> I, I could hear your tone of voice on that one. That was good.
0: <laughs> <laughs> I like this idea of, of microservices and paying for specific parts of the the, the publishing system. One thing I like about this is this will inevitably put stress on the subscription model of journals, pushing more towards open access. And the benefit there being that with with subscription, with a subscription model, we don't know how much universities are paying. Most universities, most countries keep this up under wrap. Under wraps. As soon as you move to an open access uh, service, people actually see, oh wow, this is how much it costs. So people are really going to start to think about what am I actually paying for. And by doing these microservices and saying, oh, I'm paying for the expertise of the reviewers that this society can provide. Um, I'm paying for the copy editing, I'm paying for the organization, I think that's really gonna change things. And this is um this is gonna be an interesting step. But one thing I've seen a few people worry about is, well, there's been no mention of open access caps and without any open access or sorry, without any APC caps, then the the journals are gonna keep on uh Keep on screwing us and, and charging us ten thousand <laughs> for APCs. Is, is there any way out of this prestige trap of yeah. us or of researchers continually paying high fees just to get into these prestigious journals? So the
1: so this is one of those big concerns and in, in related to the public access versus open access that we were talking about before. Is the does the gold open access model become the dominant model? Um, and it could, but I think. Let's take for granted that it does um, and everything is APC driven and the whole market has to change to figure out how to give less resourced uh, researchers access to be able to be able to publish at all uh, and then uh, all of those other challenging dynamics. But even in an APC only world, I think the point that you just raised, uh, which was the researcher actually notices how much things cost becomes a very important factor in influencing the overall market, which is right now, I don't know how much anything costs. I don't care. I just want to give away my papers to the publisher so that they will. I will get the credit from my CV. And then I really want my library to buy them back so that I can actually read them. Um, and whatever the costs are, it doesn't make any difference to me as the researcher. But as soon as it's all gold open access, again, accepting the world where that's the dominant then it, i will pay attention it may not if, if i have millions of dollars at my disposal it may not matter but i probably won't have millions of dollars at my disposal so there will be market pressure on price to push that down there'll also be competition at similar levels of prestige uh so that if i can get the same impact factor journal as stupid as that is uh for $1000 or for $2000 i'll go for the $1000 one so there would be price the thing that won't go away is paying for prestige just like you know um, you know, James spending all of that money on fancy shoes um, you know he because he wants the brand uh, and it matters so much to him to have that brand uh, on his ears or wherever he puts his shoes. I don't know how, how he wears his clothes anymore.
2: Um, um definitely, uh, definitely 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 an ear thing. Yeah. Ear me. thing. Yeah, okay. That's what I figured. Yeah, and yeah,
1: I yeah. I and you even moving up uh the body over time. I didn't know how high you'd gotten yet. Um, um
2: wait till you see my boot so- hat. <laughs>
1: <laughs> <laughs> but you know, the so you will the there will be pricing on prestige in an alt gold away world. But that's that's very similar to every other market uh that exists uh and is at least a rational market. Uh, which is we might hate prestige, but we know why people want to pay for it. Uh, and it would be more explicit now compared to the current market, which all the costs are invisible.
2: Yeah, for sure. Yeah, this is, it's, it's, it's really interesting to consider these two completely separate ways of valuing the same thing. One that is sort of amorphous and quasi-categorical, and the other which is totally ubiquitous and continuous, which is money. Um, Even more so, the thing that concerns me at the center of this, like even more so than we have now, is obviously, especially within the life sciences, there's a very, very strong CNS or bust kind of uh, uh, perception about what it means to publish a thing. Like the successful PhD was finished in the laboratory doing some form of biology and eventually we got a CNS paper or we didn't. And that's literally still how people talk about it. Like biologists now in this year, like it's 1975, right? Um, I have a concern about that happening elsewhere, about the idea that there's going to be a kind of categorical split that happens that comes within any other related domain where there's complicated shit going on and we have to we have to value it on the basis of whether or not it's good or bad um if someone puts themselves on a pedestal or even more so is something that I'm very familiar with and everyone who listens to this is familiar with, if people are going hard into their impact factor game silliness, and I think it's very, it's very much an open secret now that if you want to do that, if you want to play that particular game, it is perfectly available to be played. So let's say computational neuroscience or something like that where we've got an impact factor of four, um, you could probably juice that to eight or 10 within three to five years of trying. And at that point in time, um, with the with the idea of there needs to be component value to the thing that I'm essentially selling back to you, then there's a balkanization that's possible, which doesn't feel like a good idea. Um especially because, you know, the inevitable march of competition, et cetera, et cetera. We're continually looking for for more ways to cut these things up. Um, There's an article just today, uh, well, maybe it wasn't today, I read it today, that's in Science about people like they're they're struggling to get get postdocs, they're struggling to get people into their lab, et cetera, et cetera, which at the end of the day, more than anything else, apart from a I need to keep the lights on, et cetera, is often a prestige decision. If you're going to go to the fancy place, they're not struggling. I promise you, there's no one, uh, there's no one at some uh, a, a lab at Yale who's going. Ah, oh, where are all these? What What am I going to do? No one's applied to come and become to to be a postdoc here. Um, that that's that's never going to change. That's never going to change because you have uh, there's. There's an implied there's an implied payoff. That's the reason Harvard treat their junior faculty so terribly is because, as far as they're concerned, they're, con- they're con- conferring a tremendous amount of uh, value to you just by the fact that you can say you were there, uh, even if they uh, run you like a greyhound for five years and then suddenly forget your tenure down the back of the couch. So, I hope I hope that made sense. I, I fear I fear these things increasingly sorting into alleged categories like this.
1: Yeah. So what i am not put stringing together perfectly in your argument is how does the public access mandate accelerate that?
2: I I think because a a tremendous amount of people who haven't had to think about maintaining a gold OA model are going to be forced into – a place where they have to value everything. Um, in short, it was like more, more, more societies, more associations thinking like publishers. Yeah,
1: yeah. Okay, so th- that's one plausible world. The other is that the frontiers and MDPI approach to open access takeover. <laughs> and the because the market pressure right for for gold open access fees the incentive for the publisher becomes very quickly, just publish everything. Every, anything you can get submitted to you, publish it because that's another $3,000, $4,000 in your pocket. Um, and so they trade on, screw prestige, we're going for volume. Um, and, and then, of course, the reputational stakes are collapsing and it's not clear that what will happen for uh, publishers like them uh, but maybe they, you know, they're in it for a good time, not a long time, uh, and appreciate the high revenues over a short period. Um,
2: I think, I think, I think it, 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 especially look if you if you if you're selling, if you want a prestige play, I think the the the, the pursuit of volume like that's very difficult. Um, there, there are factors that let you scale a business like that. When this sort of like you've got this weird combination of digital resources and human resources, and there's pieces of it that scale really well, there's pieces of it that don't. Um, I wonder, I wonder if that's possible. Obviously, the first uh, <laughs> the first society for neuroscience journal where you can just put in a ham sandwich if you draw a neuron in it. Um, I guess we'll know when that happens.
1: Yeah, and and we have. Existing examples of OA publishers that manage to maintain prestige outlets and have not fallen prey to some of the other market forces, you know, PLOS and eLife being the two most notable examples.
2: Yeah, for sure. Um,
1: and, and, you know, they are, they are different kinds of organizations. They're nonprofits uh, for one, but then they're also very mission driven uh explicitly so and in fact evolve and much more than a, just a publisher uh they've they've diversified how they are contributors to uh improving the culture of science and they see that as their primary role rather than as just as a publisher per se so i think there's there is a lot of opportunity there and certainly all of the forces will be looking for how they can position uh, to dominate but i do think that that it, it this change makes it a lot harder for the dysfunctional models to dominate uh, because it puts a lot of things on the table that previously have not been. Like, For example, the, uh, the public access mandate, I think, puts uh, the, uh, the leverage point for libraries, university libraries, much further ahead to take Aggressive step of just canceling subscriptions altogether. Lots of librarians say, I'd love to do that, but I just can't, right? I'm stuck. Um, The faculty and researchers at my institution demand access, so I have to provide it. Well, if we can say that in year one, yeah, you won't be able to access everything yet, uh, but everything that comes through this, you know, a substantial portion, and then every year, There'll be a, a smaller proportion that can't access through official channels. Everybody can get access to everything we know, but um, but the normal channels, that will decline. I think it'll be a lot easier for the more progressive librarians to say, screw it. We're done with subscriptions. That's off yeah. the table.
2: Right. And right, we're right. going it's a different just, direction. It, especially with things with, I mean, a lot of, especially science more than other academic fields, obviously, it's very strong, uh, very strong focus on recency. So once yeah. you have five years, for instance, of, of stacked accessible documents over time. Um, and of course, like I mean, I think, uh, I, I mean, you'd actually probably both know this figure better than I would. I think approximately just on the, on the rawest possible basis, half of everything right now is publicly accessible in some format. And A lot of it's publicly accessible for some format because someone was teaching it for a class in Poland, and then Google Scholar managed to pick it up via the spider, and then all of a sudden it's a. And no one's no one's checking that. No one no one's trying to roll that back. No one's going through research uh, research gate and taking away all the things that have got authors' watermarks on them. They, they try about once every two years, but it's not. It's not aggressive. There's always a lot of backlash. So the whole thing is very porous and it's going to go from very porous to almost entirely porous if people actually follow the damn thing. And this is actually the one thing, Brian, I really wanted to ask you about because there was an article in Stat News um, about a week ago, maybe. So, right. Um, The NIH mandates that um, clinicaltrials.gov has to have uh federally funded, uh, uh clini- federally funded clinical trials need to be put into it, reported to the federal database. Um, someone just looked that up recently, um, and they got about half of them. I'd have to go and look at the um, and you know, and I think the, the NIH has a very sort of tepid record of in, in caring in any way about most of this stuff. Um, if if we mandate something like this, will people pay attention, or will they simply not do it and then do it when they're reminded by email or the office of the <laughs> inspector general or 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 a, a cranky a, a cranky email from a meta scientist at a later date? Do, are, are people because Scientists hate coercing other scientists into doing anything. I mean, if you make something mandatory, sure, but you, plenty of things have been made mandatory and people have just gone, ah, screw it, I'll do it when you make me, right? But at yeah. the same time, making people is very poorly received and people of a, a certain mindset they do not really appreciate uh, being told what to do, especially when being told what to do is someone else's record-keeping requirements. So I'm, I'm the the thing that I really wanted to put in front of you is the possibility of a custom more honored in the breach than the observance.
1: Yeah. The policies often fail because of not because of the sensibility of the policy, but because of lack of appreciation of the challenges of implementation, of hmm. not attending to the workflows of the people that actually have to Enact the policy in their own behavior, uh, and not dealing with the norms and training and value proposition for why uh, that policy exists. And clinical trials is a great example for a variety of reasons. Um, it is by and large uh, treated as a bureaucratic burden rather than a facilitator of good practice. Right. The whole, the core point from a scientific uh, perspective is that. Registering your trials provides a benefit to reduce publication bias and to make clear what was planned versus what wasn't. Um, But the emergence of it did not cultivate that understanding within the community. Mm. And the implementation going to these websites is highly burdensome, right? To register, you have to fill out all kinds of stuff that a lot of times is totally irrelevant to your research. And so there are many institutions and many labs that treat it as purely bureaucratic. It's this administrative process. And then the what you were just mentioning of the failure to report is that there's a requirement to report the outcomes uh, within, I think it's 12 months uh, of the completion of the trial. I think it's
2: 24, but it doesn't. Uh,
1: Maybe it's 24. Yeah. Um, And that's often not done uh, because it's outside the workflow. It's not attended to, it's not managed well uh, for how it is that that needs uh, to be implemented. So that's a big problem. But there are easy ways uh, to integrate into researchers' workflows so that the open access and even the open data mandates are followed through. Um, and one of them is to for institutions to do it in annual reporting. Every researcher submits their CV of all the new things they've published in the last year to get their raise, because they want their raise. So if instead what you do is you just add your Papers as the the PDFs of your final version of your paper, and that's how you uh, submit your progress report. Everyone will do it. You'll have 100% compliance. Um, so it no it's, it's it's not that it has to be that one way, uh, but that's just an illustration of integrated with things that are already in the researcher's interests, already in their workflow, already things they're going to do, and make it as easy as possible at that point. Uh, and then the other side is is effective compliance.
2: Yeah, Brian, it's almost it's almost like you've run an organization that at its primary level helps people organize things that are difficult to do and that people will <laughs> do the right thing in air quotes when it's uh it's not made particularly burdensome for them.
1: Right. It is ridiculous to rely <laughs> on good intentions. As much as I believe in the good intentions of many researchers, <laughs> most researchers even, uh, to rely on good intentions is a fool's errand because I have good intentions to do lots of things that I don't do. Uh, and it's because they're burdensome. Yeah. Uh, they're hard. I forget. Uh, I don't know how to do it. Oh, all, all kinds of reasons I don't do those things that I really wish I did,
2: mate. If you're like me, you think I'm going to do the thing because I'm supposed to. You open up, you look at the first page, you see fourteen oh. boxes that you have to <laughs> fill out, and you go, "Oh, fuck <laughs> that!" Like I'll get to it in my spare moments because God knows yeah. all of us are just just beset with spare Is moments it? all the time. Yeah. I mean, yeah. yeah There's a pandemic, post-pandemic scientific environment. Um, regardless of where you work, it's just—I um, don't know. I mean, it's—it's it's a lot like a beach party, to be quite honest. Um, this is a, us talking to you in your mandated 45-minute window <laughs> where you actually have available <laughs> time for the week. <laughs> yeah. Um, it, it's yeah. I uh, I I often think about when I see see things like this. I often think about. SaaS businesses. A lot. Software yeah. as a service businesses. Exactly. And the the approach that you you have to take. And I've had it described to me so many times basically as automate automate the hard boring thing. That's it. Automate the hard boring thing. Is your is, Precisely. is your, obviously there's just there's just companies, right? And um valuations in the many hundreds of millions of dollars. And all they do is Uh, maintain all the compliance that your employees have to have over time so they can do their jobs correctly. Because there's plenty of things you might have to have three or four different sorts of compliance. Say you're on a worksite or you're an auditor or you're working in a basement of a half-finished building, you know, uh, you're handling money, you're handling chemicals, whatever, and then all of a sudden you've got 12,000 employees and each one of them has got all these crossover certifications all the time. And all you need to do is a thing, and it sends you an email. Hey, you have 24 hours to renew your uh, material safety handling certificate, something, something. Here's the link. Go do it. It'll auto populate it, it'll get back to you. All of a sudden, you're not getting fined by the government anymore. The whole thing just goes away. Um, I wish we had space for, I mean, because I see you, I see OSF thinking like that. And I want to flag something here that I thought was really interesting because obviously we're all familiar with the twirls and people going crazy over the Malone. And I see things like the thing that you posted a couple of days back, Uh, link your data, materials, code and papers to pre-registration, no matter what repository or whatever, just by banging in the DOI. So basically, you're trying to assemble a pre-registration. All you do, DOI, clack, thing, push, done, populated. That's thinking like a SaaS business. And I don't really see other organizations doing it, and I definitely don't see the government doing it. Yeah,
1: because the motivation is different, right? It's, it, it's not necessarily user-centric. The, the overriding mindset in government implementation is we need people to follow the policy. And our starting point is we need to help researchers do what they're trying to do. Mm. Uh, And if you start from the user behavior, you start from where they are and figure out what is it that motivates and drives them, where is it that this stuff gets in the way uh, or interferes with or becomes a burden or everything else, and how do we bring that closer to them so that they say, oh, well, if I can do that easily, sure." Right, so like OSF itself, you can operate entirely privately on OSF. You can use it as a way to not lose your own stuff for your own use, mm. and that was the initial key selling point. Which is, you know, you run in a lab, and uh, you know, grad students leave, postdocs leave, and a lot of knowledge leaves with them. You never find, you know, like, I can't find my own projects for my own use three years later of uh, the stuff that we did. Uh, yeah. And so where, OSF where, where solves that. Where
2: are my that. panels? Where's my Where's right. my Where's my data? Yeah.
1: Right. And so never you never have to open anything on OSF. But there's that little button up in the corner that says "Make it public." <laughs> and if you click it, it says "Are you sure?" And you say "Yeah," and <laughs> yeah. it's public. Right. Yeah. So instead of there being a whole new process for how you make stuff open, it is your management process for your private work and two clicks. Um, that if we if we can. Provide that value uh, for the self-management, then the public is a, is a side benefit uh, from the user perspective. A big thing that we are moving towards with OSF, relating to your point, is that that, that release that we just had is now it, trying to make it more visible and more connected, all of the things that researchers are doing, right? They pre-register, here's their data, here's their paper, here's the, the stuff. So, if we can connect that more easily... Then that's more visible to the consumers of research when they come, but it also sets the stage to make it easier for me as the producer of that research to have a visible profile of my science that is more aligned with my desire to be open and transparent. So a lot of the work over the next year is setting up uh, OS, you know, OSF as a as a profile. Right? Can you can you by doing open, while you're doing open science, have the experience of that you're building your CV. That you're, you're by doing your research, you're adding components to, instead of just waiting for the publication at the end, you've got the start of a project and then, oh, I've, I've registered my study. Oh, that shows up. Oh, my project is 30% complete. Oh, and now we have our data, our data's added. Uh, it's 50% complete. I'm not making up the percentage thing, but the point being that if I can interact with the OSF and see myself making progress on building my CV. I'm rewarding myself for as an organizational system, first of all, just keeping track of all this stuff. But then also that sense of, oh, there's so little reward in the mundane day-to-day of doing the science, of getting from the initial conception to the final publication, right? It's such a long process. Can we make it so that researchers can see and feel and experience that progress and then make the open part trivial.
0: I think institutions uh, are going to love that because right now a lot of institutions are going, okay, we care about open access now, but they don't know how to to quantify it. They know how to quantify citations and H-indexes, even though there's problems with that, but they want to be able to quantify um, open access practices. And by setting up something like that where you can point them to here is my page, because right now they're going, give us a link to your Web of Science page, give us a link to your Google Scholar page, and that gives a certain type of information. But if it's about give us a link to your OSF page and show us your practices, I think institutions will be very interested in that.
1: Yeah, I think you're exactly right, is that this becomes a, a way to diversify the reward system for researchers. So if I feel like not only can I show you all of my work, but now I provide a mechanism for the agents of decision-making to evaluate that work, uh, especially in a world that now it's much clearer that open science has momentum, right? This, we're not talking in theory of, oh, wouldn't it be great if open science was a thing? It's, it is a thing. Uh, and so now the reward system is shifting, or at least the interest in getting realigned with uh, a reward system is uh, emerging.
0: This is not be brilliant.
2: The, um, the, the plague, if there's two good things that have happened, um, I think there's been a tremendous normalizing force for um, resources just being immediately public because yeah. there were so many people, yeah. regular people, news organizations, people who wanted to communicate about what was going on because it was their job, people actually doing research, people who are following the companies that are doing research in markets. Everyone had this... Hyper focused on what's happening right now, and it really, really did change the just the the bulk of how expectation worked when it came to how we're we going to release and talk about this thing when it actually happened. And then, yeah. of course, people immediately encountered the preprint conundrum, and then there were lots and lots and lots of articles in the regular news media explaining the difference between a preprint and a publication. And now I see people. I mean, I, was, I saw this on the news once, and someone's going, "This is an unpublished manuscript, so you should pay very close attention to the fact that it might be going to sit. <laughs> but we talk to all these people, we're like, "Oh my God, they're doing, they're doing what responsible journalists do, but they're doing that on the news." And I consider people on the news in America essentially to be frogs who've learned to talk, um, and and they've got that far. Um, the 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 figures of like the growth of it um are somewhat consistent with how they were previously. But there's definitely been an uptick in the yep. rate of growth proportional to previous. And do you know one other interesting thing? This is completely irrelevant, but I only discovered it recently. If you hang out on the twertle and listen to listen to the the televisions and whatever, you you might be under the impression that the uh just in general, globally that the loonies are winning. But there there is a uh a report that 3M do uh, called uh, uh, State of Science or something like that. And the bump that was sort of, do you trust scientists? Do you trust the scientific establishment? Are they lovely people? You know, are their white coats full of smiles, blah, blah, blah. That went up so much historically during the pandemic because five or six percentage points or something like that at once. So they had to give it a name. Because it was it was making a, it was making a bollocks of all the, the models that they were using so that's the the sort of that's the sort of collective impression and the other the other nice thing that the horrible terrible plague has conferred to us so there's it's it's definitely been a normalizing force though for the idea that the I, I ideas are allowed to be in the public domain beforehand Um I I have no information on how this would have uh, crossed over with OSTP setting up policy because I know that takes a period of years and they have a period of consultation because they probably talked to you a few times. They definitely talked yeah. to me um, yeah. when it comes to the misconduct stuff. Um, I wonder if they were related because like even even Uncle Donald's oh, yeah. administration was thinking about doing something more formal about this during the plague. I don't think they did yeah. it, but it was they like it was no, seriously it was in considered.
1: Yeah. yeah. No, it certainly made this easier. And also, just the evidence that people, for example, were starting to share data, uh, were sharing papers uh, more openly, more quickly. Just the fact that that's happening more really lowered, I think, the, um, uh, the barrier uh, for them to take a, a very assertive stance uh, with the memo. And just from what you were saying, just to loop back to the original conversation about you know, public open access and the shifting models, uh, the I think the pandemic also surfaced a market inefficiency that, that now uh, with the, this mandate becomes even easier to start to exploit. And that is the speed is a very hard thing to align with the journal system as it currently exists so you know we know preprints mm-hmm. and oh gosh they're not reviewed and what do blah 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 but there's lots of space in between not peer-reviewed and published following peer review yeah uh lots of space for innovation so paper sharing services can have lots of kinds of verification processes right did, did they follow uh reporting standards uh is their data shared uh, there are a lot of things there could be automated, for example, uh, and tagged on papers before peer review. Open commenting systems. There's all kinds of innovation happening in the review space uh, for how things can be evaluated and how that can be surfaced more quickly, more readily. That don't fit the traditional paper uh, publication system.
2: You're very you're very patient with these things, aren't you?
1: Well, so, I, it's
2: like you, you're so you're so crushingly realistic. That's why I really like talking to you, is because you you manage to put all of this in context. But you're actually, it, I, I find that so many people are wildly impatient with how they expect these things to change, and they then they use my least favorite word, which is should. Yeah. Um. This 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 should be this should be a certain right. way, and I I I don't I really I'm. I I like the fact that your perspective is here on this podcast because people can hear what the actual mechanics of should sound like. (laughs) Um, Right. I think that's... Right.
1: Right. And, you know, culture change is hard. Yeah, it is really hard to fundamentally change a culture. But the great thing is that once you do, it's permanent, in quotes. Uh, It's like you just got to get it to shift and then it's done. Uh, and obviously, you have to keep iterating and improving, but it's the, the point being is a lot of these things, once they're implemented, are hard to re- rewind. Uh, it's really then just building from there. Uh, and so the patience is needed uh, to have realistic, sustainable change, right? We can do one shot sort of like, hey, I screwed that one publisher and did this paper and did elsewhere, but didn't actually change anything. It was just sort of a, made me feel good in that moment. The fundamental changes require a lot of boring stuff, <laughs> a lot of building tools, like you were talking about SaaS software, a lot of like building things that are like, you yeah, know, why do we need to build this? Like, this is ridiculous. But once it's built, uh, that opens up the possibility to do this forever. Uh, and that change is what really matters, right? Getting For us, things like the top guidelines of getting journals to update their policies. Once a journal changes its policies it's to be more open, they don't go back. And so every single paper in that journal for the next 10, 15, 20 years is going to have open data, open materials, open code, whatever policies they implemented. That's cumulative impact.
0: On that optimistic note, we're going to wrap up the episode. Thank you so much for joining us, Brian. Um, we'll post links to all the stuff that we spoke about. And uh, yeah, looking forward to all the stuff you're going to be implementing in the future for OSF. Yeah.
1: Yeah. Yeah, us too. So, thanks again for having me on and for keeping the conversation rolling as you do.
2: Yeah, we don't. We don't have a choice at this point. We're lashed, <laughs> we're lashed to the master of this ship as it goes through the rocks.